Well, good morning, Riverside. If we haven't met yet, my name is James Walden, and I'm one of the pastors here and part of the Gills Creek small group. And uh, I have recently come back from a three-month sabbatical. So I'm, thank you. It is, it's really good to be back and to be back in the saddle. Um, it's a little intimidating. It has been, to be honest, a little overwhelming. I had hoped for my first sermon that I was going to be a little bit more uh, rested from a good night's sleep uh, before. Uh, so it has been uh, like jumping on a freight train coming back. But I am deeply thankful for our sabbatical and the gift of this sabbatical. And it, it did provide very deep rest for us, for me especially, and our family. And uh, just to um, quench any fears, I know it's the stereotype that the pastor comes back from sabbatical and announces he's leaving within the year. Uh, I have no intentions to leave. Um, so uh, I appreciate that. You could have said, oh. Um, but I'm actually all the more eager to jump back in and, and what it is that we're trying to do here as a congregation, to be a gospel-centered church that is continually being transformed by the gospel, to multiply healthy disciples, healthy gospel communities and small groups, and healthy church plants here in our city and around the world. And that beautiful task continues to impel me, and I'm all the more eager to jump back into it. And I'm hopeful that you'll continue to join me faithfully as you all have these last good number of years. Uh, Stacy and I will be sharing more about our time away tonight at 5 o'clock, as Haley already mentioned. I encourage you to come if, if you can. I'd love to not only be able to share the Lord, how the Lord spoke to us and blessed us, but also hear from you, how the Lord blessed you as a congregation while we were away. One of the big things I, I, I took away from my sabbatical was this, this sort of repeated phrase um, that I kept hearing, reading, encountering, and that was, slow down. It's hard, it's hard to worship when you're in a hurry. It's hard to behold the beauty of the Lord when you're always in a rush. And so, you'll hear more tonight, but as I slew, uh, slowed down, there was a daily practices that I took upon myself to, to do. And one of those was to pray three times a day, which is a very ancient practice of the church, morning, midday, and evening prayers. And my, I think my favorite times of the day were those evening prayers. When I would sit out on the front porch and the sun would be going down and I would read this ancient hymn of the church. This is a song that goes back at least to the fourth century, maybe the third century, maybe even earlier. It's known as Phos Hilaron, which is Greek for happy light. And here's the prayer as I was watched the sunset. 
O joyful light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, O Jesus Christ, holy and blessed, now as we come to the setting of the sun and our eyes behold the vesper or evening light, we sing your praises, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are worthy at all times to be praised by happy voices. I love that. O Son of God, O giver of life, and to be glorified through all the worlds. Not just the world, all the worlds. Whatever worlds may be, you're worthy to be glorified in all of them. And indeed he is. There's no one more worthy, more glorious, no one more good, more true, more beautiful. The more I slowed down to see him, the more I worshipped him. And the more I worshipped him, the more I saw that drew my heart into deeper worship. Worship begets worship. So what luck that my first sermon back is about worship. I didn't design that. I'm not that clever, that, that well planned. It just happens that chapter 12 is Isaiah's hymn of praise to close out, to bookend the second section of his oracles, chapter 6 through 12. And what a fitting bookend it is. As we'll see in this hymn of Isaiah, he shows us that worship is the end of our lives. It is the purpose of being human. It is the climax of the ideal human experience. So with that preface, would you read with me the psalm? It's, it's Isaiah chapter 12. We're picking up right where we left off in May. But Isaiah 12 verse 1, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you because we're going to be, be kind of catching up on context. So we'll be flipping back to chapter 11. Open your Bibles. If you're not familiar with Isaiah, it's kind of toward the center of our Bibles. If you open it, cut it in half, you'll be in the Psalms. You flip over a couple books, you'll be in Isaiah. But Isaiah 12.1 says, You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. And at this time, our children's church is dismissed, as well as Crossroads. And as our kids are making their way to study Scripture together, I invite you, our introvert's favorite part of the service, to greet your neighbor.
We'll regather now to relieve our introverts. You know, they say the perfect church uh, is not the church in which you're always comfortable. It's the church in which everyone is at some point uncomfortable. Uh, and so I know that that's, some people love the greeting of the neighbors and other people are like, can we please never do that again? Um, and that's just the way it is when you're, in, you're a family, right? You do things that not everybody loves. Uh, and so thank you for humoring me on that. As I said, um, we are, according to Isaiah, created for worship. Uh, a theologian once uh, wrote, he said, man is indeed homo sapien, the man of understanding or wisdom, and homo faber, man the toolmaker, the man who makes things. But first and foremost, he is Homo adorans, the man who worships. That's what it means to be human. Not, we're not just man the maker, we're man the made. There's another one who has fabricated us. And we aren't just man who understands, we're man who wants to be understood and known by something greater than ourselves. We are made to worship. In a now famous commencement speech given to a class at Kenyon College, the brilliant and sadly now deceased David Foster Wallace gave a talk called This is Water. And in that speech, he said, and as far as I know, David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. But he says to this group of students, he says, I'm going to tell you a weird truth. In the trenches of day-to-day -day adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. We all worship. You just get to choose what you worship. That says something profound about the human condition, that we are not self-sufficient. We are made to adore something else, that we need more, that our souls are deeply, deeply hungry and need to be satisfied with something substantial. And David Foster Wallace in that talk says, if you choose money, you choose poorly. He <laughs> says, if you choose money or things, you will never have enough. If you choose beauty, he said, you'll always feel ugly. If you choose intelligence, you'll always feel like a fraud. And so choose wisely, he tells the students. What or who will you worship? If we choose other gods to worship, we will find ourselves dwindling and diminished. Our souls turn inward and collapse. We become hungrier, not satiated. The strange thing about God is as we give honor and glory to the one true God of Israel, the God who has revealed himself in the prophets and now in Jesus Christ to the nations, we find our souls expanding. We find ourselves not diminished, but all the greater as we humble ourselves before this God. Not only will we see in this text that worship is the climax of the ideal human experience, 
It is the means by which we get to that climax. It is the great end. Remember the Westminster Catechism? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy. That's worship forever and ever. But it's the means by which we get to that great day. Speaking of which, what is that day? And I'm calling this our grand finale. Our grand finale on that day. That day used there in verse 1 and again, he, will, he uses it in verse 4, in that day, is right from chapter 11. Jump back in chapter 11. Remember, I warned you we're going to do some review here. So chapter 11, verse 10, Isaiah writes, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. This root of Jesse, this quintessentially Israeli figure, the son of David, will be the one to whom Gentiles flock to inquire. He is the messianic figure Isaiah has been talking about throughout this entire section, the second section of Isaiah's oracles that we've been in before we took a summer break. Back in chapter 11, verse 1, he speaks again in agricultural terms of this figure from Jesse's line. Jesse is the father of David, who is, of course, the, the, uh, the great king of Israel from whom the Messiah would descend. But in Isaiah 11:1, 1, we read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Though Jesse's tree will be felled, a stump, a stump in the ground, a, a shoot will arise and will bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. This is the messianic figure that Isaiah has been talking about. Then you go back to chapter 9, and he speaks again of this Davidic figure. He says, to us a child is born, for us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And on the throne of David... He will reign. He will bring peace and justice forever and ever. This is the same figure. He is both the root of David, the support of David, and the descendant of David. And he's already come. He's already come. In other words, that day is today. When are we going to sing these great praises? Now. Because that day of Jesse's line resurrecting in Christ is here. Paul quotes Isaiah 11.10 as past tense. He says to a church where Jews and Gentiles were not getting along very well, they were fighting with each other over food and ceremony and drink and days to observe. And he says, what I want, what I pray for you is that you would with one voice glorify the God of our Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say this, who became a servant to the Jews to prove God's faithfulness to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles would sing his praises. And then he quotes all these prophecies from Moses and the prophets 
about how the Gentiles are going to join with Israel in the worship of the one true God. And last of all, he quotes Isaiah 11.10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope, which is the Greek translation of our text. So we sing now together with one voice because the root of Jesse has come. The descendant of David has come. On the other hand, in that day is this great eschatological event that will bring world peace. Again, in chapter 11, look at verse 9. Speaking of this new world that will have been established with the coming of the shoot from Jesse's line. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everyone will know the Lord and there will be peace. This picks up the theme of both of Isaiah's past two oracles. Back in chapter 2, do you remember he says that God will judge between the nations and they shall, he shall decide disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. They will learn war no more. Or again, in the great prophecy of the son of David, Isaiah 9, the child who's given to us, the son who's born to us, he says every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. War will be no more. And we're not there yet, clearly. This is what theologians mean by when Christ fulfilled the prophets. It's an already fulfillment and a not yet fulfillment. He has come and he's coming again. And so, though we are not there, we sing because the day has come and is coming. We still await the great zenith of that day to shine upon us but we sing until it comes. In fact, as we'll see, it comes in part through your singing, which is remarkable. Secondly, not only is this that day, it is, it is the day of salvation. Isaiah refers to that day as a second exodus. Exodus was the defining salvific moment of Israel's history. It's what constituted them as the people of God out of slavery, out of the power and furnace of Egypt, into the land God promised them by miraculous signs and powers. And he says, you think that was impressive. Wait for this. Look at chapter 11, verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time. Second to what? The Exodus. And he goes on to, to quote it and jump down for the sake of time, verses 15 and 16. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river. And with his scorching breath, he will strike it into seven channels and he will lead his people across in sandals. They'll cross the sea in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria, which is where the people of God, northern Israel, are in exile. For the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. 
a second exodus event, a defining salvation event will be this day, the day of salvation. In fact, Isaiah wants to make this connection super clear. So in the song, the hymn here in chapter 12, he quotes verbatim the very same song of Moses in Exodus 15 after they had crossed the Red Sea. It's on the screen, but uh, verse 15, verses 1 and 2, Moses, we're told, Moses and the people of Israel, this was a choir, this was a choir event, sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, which is exactly what Isaiah says in verse 2. For the Lord is my strength and my song. The word song there is archaic. It's ancient. It's mosaic. And he uses Moses' old word to make clear he's quoting Moses. He even uses Moses' term of endearment for the Lord. Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh. You know, it's kind of cutesy saying almost. Yah, it's what we sang, Alleluia, praise ye the Lord. It's a shortened way to say, oh yeah, that's Yahweh. I call him Yah. We're good. He calls him Yah, Yahweh is what Isaiah calls him. But he clearly is referencing Moses' term of endearment. He's saying just like God's people broke out in spontaneous praise in their day of salvation, the same will be true in that day of salvation. In fact, verse 2 of chapter 12 is a salvation sandwich. What do I mean? Verse 1, I mean verse 2, behold, God is my salvation. Look, jump down to the end of the stanza, look how it ends. And he has become my salvation. That means that frames the whole idea. God has become my salvation, and therefore, how can I but sing? We sing because God has saved us. But not just does he reference Moses' song, he references Miriam's song. Because at the end of chapter 15 in Exodus, Miriam stands up as a prophetess, the sister of Aaron, and she takes the tambourine, and all these sisters of Israel join her, and they start dancing, and now it's a solo. It's just Miriam singing. And she, she leads the whole group in worship. And she sings this. Sing to the Lord for, this is a very literal translation, He is glorified gloriously, which is an echoed in verse 5 when Isaiah writes, Sing praise to the Lord for He has done gloriously. And he speaks with a feminine subject in verse 6. Shout, O inhabitant of Israel, as if to echo the memory of Miriam. Not only that, just like what we're seeing in Exodus, there's a switch between the singular and the plural. If you see in verse two, chapter 12, verse 1, you is singular. You will say in that day, I will give, th- I will give thanks. You were angry with me. But now you comfort me. God is my salvation, verse 2. I will trust and not be afraid. He is my strength, my song, my salvation. But then in verse 3, it jumps to plural. With joy, y'all will draw water from the wells of salvation. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Sing praises. 
And just like Miriam sings solo and then Moses sings with the choir, salvation is both an individual event. We're not saved by proxy. We are saved as individuals. But it is also always a communal experience. When you all worship, when I hear your voices, it leads me to worship. And the very same grace that is saving you overflows from you in your words of encouragement to me. In other words, as God's saving you, through that very means, He's saving me. Your grace overflows in my life. And hopefully it's vice versa as well. It's mutual. That's how it's designed to be. It's both the individual and the community that sings their hearts out. We sing because God has saved us, but he saved us from what exactly? And that is our greatest problem. As strange as it sounds, our greatest problem was God. Verse 1 again. Take a look at verse 1. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. The greatest problem that we could face, and all of us in this room have faced it, is to have the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the ruler over all powers, principalities, everything that exists, be opposed to us. What's more terrifying? What, what currently is happening in your life, hard thing, that even begins to compare to the God of the universe standing against you? That was our situation. It's, it's the human condition. Because of God's holiness, His purity, His goodness, He's opposed to what is evil in us, to our betrayals, to our lies, to our manipulation, to the way we hurt each other. God stands adamantly opposed to it. And so you and I are in a real predicament before the living God. Remember I said chapter 12 is the bookend of a section that begins in Isaiah 6. Well, if you remember, Isaiah 6 is Isaiah's famous encountering with the Holy One of Israel. Do you remember what happens when he sees just the hem of God's robe, which is a metaphor. God's not literally an old man who wears a robe. He saw the hem of his glory filling the temple. And these burning figures called seraphim standing, covering their eyes and their feet and shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Remember Isaiah's response? Did he just join into the singing like Miriam's sisters did? What did he do? He crumbled. He says, woe to me. Before Isaiah said woe to anyone else as a prophet of judgment, he pronounced judgment on himself. Woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. My profession is what I do with my lips, and that is fundamentally flawed. And... I am from a people of unclean lips, both individual and communal. We are in deep trouble, for the Holy One of Israel is in our midst. And we are not holy people. We have significant guilt. What will we do? This is our great dilemma. 
This answers, though, this is a beautiful resolution. Just as Isaiah finds resolution in that experience, chapter 12 summarizes the tensions that have been building through chapters 9, 10, and 11. The repeated phrase, it happens five times. For all this, all these bad things that Isaiah is prophesying, for all this, the anger of the Lord has not turned away. His hand still outstretched against us. Five times that phrase gets repeated. And now in the song of climax, you were angry with me, but your anger turned away. Praise God. His just anger against me has been turned away. And this was, this was Isaiah's personal experience as well. As he was in his moment of crisis, he was undone. A seraphim grabs a hot coal from the altar and touches it to his lips. The altar of God. See, salvation does not come from our efforts, from our finally getting our acts together. It comes from the throne room of God. He is the one who is angry with our sin. He's also the one in his love for us who will achieve our salvation for us. And so the angel brings the hot coal to his lips and says this, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. You have been atoned for. Now, in the Old Testament, there were all these symbols of atonement. Here, a fiery coal. Typically, in the, the, the cultic system of Israel, it was the blood of animals, of bulls and goats. But, of course, we know that that never took away sins. They had to keep doing it every year as a symbolic act, as a reminder of the persistent problem they faced of their own sin. But in these last days, God has sent His only begotten Son to be atonement for us. And by the blood of the eternal Son of God, not just the angels, mind you, God Himself says, you are forgiven. Your sin is atoned for. And so, like Isaiah had, after that moment, he could stand before the throne of God, no longer in terror, but boldly say, here I am, send me, O Lord. So you and I can stand in the presence of God without fear. That's what it says in verse 2, right? Remember, in the middle of our Salvation sandwich of verse 2, there's this beautiful phrase, I will trust, I will not be afraid. I will trust, I will not be afraid. This is, this is repeating the words that Isaiah gave to King Ahaz, who was terrified of his enemies. And God said, do not fear these enemies, do not tremble for them. But if you are not firm in faith, he says, you will not be firm at all. But here, the singers receive Isaiah's gospel. And they say, we have believed, we do trust. And so we're not afraid. My, my greatest problem has been solved. And so anxiety no longer shapes my life fundamentally. Sure, I'll have anxieties but I no longer live in fear. Our experience is Isaiah's experience. 
While we were still weak, morally weak, Paul writes, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous man, Paul says, though maybe for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God shows his great love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, still his enemies, he gave his son for us. If we were saved while enemies, how much more, dear saint, are you going to be saved from the wrath to come now that you're his friends, his sons and daughters? In other words, this leads us to our greatest joy. Verse 3, I love, I love verse 3. With joy, all of you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And the word well there poetically refers to leaping waters, leaping in joy. It's just this beautiful picture. The prophets and Jesus often used this image of abundant waters from springs and wells as an image of our salvation that these living waters will bubble up out of us. He says, this will be your experience. This will be your joy because God is now, his anger is turned away and he has now become your comforter. God is himself who was judge has become your salvation. Or here's how the apostle Paul puts what Isaiah is getting at. It's on the screen from chapter eight. What then shall we say in light of all these promises that have been fulfilled? If God is for us, the same God of the universe who created all things, rules all things, sustains all things, and judges all things, that God is now for us. Who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us anything that we need? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? You. Who will bring any charge against you? God himself has said, you are right. So much of our modern anxiety, I mean, some of it's just our constant distractedness, but some of it's just feeling like we're just not, life is complex and at a fast pace, and are we doing it right? Am Am I husbanding right? Am I fathering right? Am I pastoring right? Am I right? I don't know. Some days, yes. Other days, I'm not so sure. (laughs) And we have this constant anxiety of like, I'm just wrong. I'm doing it wrong. I'm fundamentally wrong. And here's the fundamental truth we have to keep returning to. God says to us, you are right. I have put you in the right. You have peace with me. I am good with you. And so he goes on. God himself has justified us. Who who could possibly condemn us? Let's not condemn ourselves when the God of the universe has justified us. Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. He more than died. He rose from the dead. And guess what? He intercedes now for us. As we speak right now, the Son of God prays for us. He intercedes for us eagerly because he loves the flock for whom he laid down his life. He is eager, and as he told the disciples, I will not lose one that the Father has put into my hand, not one. That is your security. 
not based on your performance, but based on Christ's love for you. And so, no wonder we sing, we leap and dance, right? The news couldn't be better. The God of the universe is for us. And not just for us, He's with us. Verse 6, the end of the psalm. Shout, sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Now, that was a threat to Isaiah in Isaiah in chapter 6. Oh no, I'm in the presence of the Holy One of Israel. Woe is me, I am undone. But by the end, we see he stands confident before the throne of God because of God's gracious cleansing of him. And now, Isaiah is safe to be in the presence of the Holy One, whose purity is so white-hot, it burns all impurity away. This is the drama of redemption from Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of our Bibles, especially through law and the prophets. And that is, how can the Holy One of Israel dwell with an unholy people? God wants so much to move in with His bride, but how will it happen? How will the Holy One live together with what is unholy? And so God enters into the presence of Israel in various symbolic ways, preparing God's people for the day when He would enter into them through the Holy Spirit. Moses is told this in Exodus, build me a tent. Y'all live in tents. I'm going to live in a tent too, in your midst. He says, construct a sanctuary, a tabernacle for me that I may dwell among them. It is God's heart to dwell with his people, to live with them, not just to be for them from a distance, you know, kind of, that's the way we often view God, you know, what's that Bette Midler song, from a distance, you know, <laughs> he's just sort of indifferent, he's just sort of thumbs up, kiddo, whatever, good job, all right, I'm just going to stay up here in heaven and chill, but God wants to be with us, he wants to be in the details of our lives. He attends to us, and He wants to indwell us. He showed us that in the gift of the tabernacle, which then became the temple, He showed us that most profoundly in the incarnation of the Son, who came and dwelt among us in flesh and bone, because He wants to be with us. Dear Saint, God is not annoyed with you. He is not indifferent. He doesn't have more important things to do than attend to you. He wants to be with you, and He is for you. And through Christ's good work on the cross and the empty tomb, the gift of the Spirit has been given to us, which means this, guys, the Holy One of Israel indwells you, and it's safe. Because you've been washed by the blood of Christ, it is safe for the living God to dwell with us. Yes, we can grieve the Spirit in our sin. And yes, he will discipline us in our sin. But not so that he might separate us from himself, but so that he might all the more deeply unite us to himself. Our Bibles begin with God's people being tragically thrust out of God's presence. It ends with these words, Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. 
and he will dwell among them. They will be his people, and God himself will be among them. Guys, that's amazing. The seraphim had to cover their feet and their eyes. They couldn't dwell that closely. God himself will dwell among us because of Jesus Christ. We will have profound intimacy that could not be any closer with the God of the universe. And we already taste it now, which is why we already sing. And it's only going to get better. Thirdly, and this is brief, finally, singing is our global mission, or better put, worship in general is in fact the substance of our global mission. Remember what what happens after Isaiah's cleansing. He's commissioned, isn't he? God asks a rhetorical question, who will go for us? And Isaiah, newly emboldened, no longer afraid because he trusts in the word of the Lord, says, here I am, send me. Likewise, we as the people of God, having been cleansed and washed by faith in Jesus' blood and in his sacrifice for us, have been commissioned. And this is exactly what Isaiah says here. He says, Israel's singing is for the sake of the nation's hearing. It's not just for God. It's not just for one another. It is for both of those things. It's for the nations so that they might hear. Look what he says, verses 5 and 6. Sing praise to the Lord, for he has done... Oh, sorry, verses 4 through 6. Give thanks, call upon his name, make his deeds among the peoples known. Make his deeds known. How will they know unless somebody sings it to them? We have to sing, worship, proclaim the deeds that God has done, especially in Jesus Christ. Or again, verse 5, sing praises for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. There's no people group on this earth who are not worthy of hearing the good news. All need to hear. And so we need to go and sing. We need to worship. You know, John Piper famously said, if you're familiar with John Piper, he's a well-known Christian pastor and author. My friend Jesse Schellenbarger says he's like the Pope of Protestantism. So if you haven't heard of him, um, he's well known in other circles. But he famously wrote a book on mission, and in that he has this phrase, missions exist because worship does not. And that's true. Missions exist because there are many corners of our world, our own city, maybe our own households, where worship doesn't exist. And so we go. That's true. It's gloriously, wondrously true. But here's the other truth that Isaiah here is pointing out. Where there is no worship, there will be no mission. Mission is the overflow of worship. Mission is substantiated by worship. The substance of mission is our worship. The more vital your worship, the more effective our mission. I mean... Isaiah's been speaking about how the nations are going to flood into Zion. Chapter 2, he talks about in the latter days, the nations will flow into Zion. They will seek the counsel of the Lord. Well, how will they know to come to Zion? How will they know, chapter 11, verse 10, to inquire of Jesse's descendant? 
His answer is here in chapter 12, because God's people will tell them in their worship. And that's true for us. How will the people know to come to so good a God? How will they know to whom to come? His Son, Jesus Christ. How will they know? The answer is because you and I are singing. So let's do that, shall we? Let's do that more. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful that you, you are worthy of our worship. And oftentimes, Lord, we are cool toward it in our hearts. Our eyes are not open to see your majesty, your beauty, your goodness. Lord, we are in this state here on earth, in the middle of this day. We often find ourselves ambivalent even toward the all-glorious, the all-good, the all-true, the all-beautiful one. Lord, forgive us where we are deaf, dumb, and blind to your glory and open our eyes and, Lord, open our mouths to sing your praises for you are worthy, O Son of God, to be praised with happy voices throughout all worlds.